Church, this morning's Bible reading will be coming from Jonah 3, verse 10 to 4, verse 11. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? This is the word of God. Good morning. My name is Adam. If you don't know me, it's uh, great to have you with us today as we land the sermon series that we've been in for the last few weeks in the Old Testament book of Jonah called The Depths of Grace. Now, if you're one of those people that like your movies and your books to have happy endings and to be all tied up nice and neatly and and everybody lives happily forever after, then this morning you are going to be disappointed. The story of Jonah will disappoint you. In fact, one uh, commentator says, the final chapter of Jonah is perhaps the most puzzling and mysterious of all. It almost seems like the prototype of our modern dramas in which, instead of everything turning out right in the end, things seem to fall apart and we are left feeling disturbed and uneasy. Now, if you've been here for the last few weeks, then you'd remember that back in chapter 1, God came to this prophet named Jonah and called him to go and preach against Nineveh, that great city. But Jonah hated the Ninevites and so he boarded a ship in the complete opposite direction. And so God sent a storm to wake Jonah up and to bring him back. And in chapter 2, we saw that Jonah was thrown overboard. He was thrown into the ocean where he was swallowed by a, a great fish. And from the belly of the fish, Jonah cried out to God for rescue and God heard him and God 
saved him and Jonah was vomited up onto the dry land. In chapter 3, we saw that Jonah was given a second chance. And so this time he goes to Nineveh and he preaches the shortest, most reluctant sermon in the history of mankind. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's all he said. But amazingly, the people of Nineveh repent at the preaching of Jonah. They turn to God. 120,000 people respond to this sermon from Jonah and turn to faith in God. And let me just say that if you are a preacher, that is a good day. If you're Billy Graham, that's a good day. 120,000 people. And so as we come to chapter 4 today, we might expect Jonah to be on a bit of a high. We might expect Jonah to be overcome with Uh, thanksgiving and gratitude to God for using him so powerfully. We might expect Jonah to be exceedingly happy. But look at what we read in chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this, uh, the Ninevites turning to God, repenting of their sin, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. What? 120,000 people turn to God and Jonah looks at that and he says, it's very wrong. And he becomes angry. And in fact, it's even heavier than that. The Hebrew word, the original language of the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for very wrong literally means evil. And the Hebrew word for uh, very angry or angry literally means to burn with fire. So when Jonah, literally, when Jonah is looking at the compassion of God upon the Ninevites, he says that it is evil and he is burning with rage. And this is essentially what this entire chapter is about. The anger of Jonah and the grace of God. In fact, it's about Jonah getting angry at the grace and the compassion of God. Now this might sound a little bit odd to you. Maybe you're thinking, who would get angry at the grace and compassion of God? There's lots of things to get angry about. That does not seem like one of them. But the reality is that this is still an issue today. People today still get angry at the grace and the compassion of God. For example, this week I heard of a Korean pastor who tells about his grandfather, and he says that his grandfather refused to um, believe Christianity, would refuse to submit himself to the teaching of the Bible and the teachings of Christianity. And he says that his grandfather would essentially say something along the lines of, I've got no problem with a God who believes in judgment and hell. The grandfather would say, I've seen atrocities in my life, and living in Korea, you can understand that. He'd say, I've seen terrible things in my life done by terrible people. I've got no problem with judgment and hell. He says, the problem that I have is that God, who would look upon these people who have done terrible atrocities and through faith in Jesus would forgive them completely, would forgive them totally. He said, I cannot believe in a God who is that compassionate, that merciful. You see, people still today get angry at the grace and compassion of God and maybe you've felt that before. 
Maybe you've looked at something or someone and you've said, God, I don't know how you could forgive that person that did this to me. Or God, I don't know how you could forgive those people that, that did that thing to over there. See, still today we get angry at the grace and compassion of God and what we're going to see today is that this is exactly the same problem that Jonah had. Jonah gets angry at God's grace and compassion upon others. And though it sounds odd to us on the surface, it's actually going to teach us some very important lessons. It's going to reveal some things in our hearts, especially about how we view God and how we approach and treat other people. So let's look at this chapter under those two simple headings. The surprising anger of Jonah, verses 1 to 9, and then the shocking grace of God, verses 10 to 11. Surprising anger of Jonah and shocking grace of God. Let's look firstly at the surprising anger of Jonah. Now in this chapter, Jonah actually gets angry twice. The first time he gets angry, it's because God delivered the Ninevites. The second time he gets angry, it's because God destroyed the vine, the plant. So let's look at Jonah's anger under these two headings. And the first is, he gets angry at God's right to deliver, to save, to rescue. Look at what we read there in verses 2 to 3 again. Jonah prayed to the Lord. Now this is good, he's directing his anger to God, he's praying. But look at what he says. He says, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall, to stop, by fleeing to Tarshish. Listen to this. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, for the first time, we discover why Jonah ran away from God's command to go to Nineveh in the first place. And it wasn't a fear about going to a big, violent, wicked city. It wasn't even a fear of inadequacy or a fear of failing at this God-given task. It was actually a fear of success. You see, Jonah hated the Ninevites. Not only were they brutal, cruel, wicked people, but they were the people of God, Israel's most feared enemy. These were Jonah's enemies. And he knew that if he was to go to Nineveh and to preach this message to them, he just knew that if they repented and turned, then God would forgive them. God would have mercy upon them because he knew what God is like. That's what he says there in verse 2. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. It's almost like he's angry about this fact. I knew that's what you were like, God. See, Jonah knew the scriptures, Jonah knew theology, and that was the problem for him. Because he knew what God was like, and he knew what God would do in response to the Ninevites' repentance. And of course, that's exactly what happens, and Jonah is furious, burning with rage. Now think about the shocking irony of Jonah's attitudes and actions. Because it was not that long ago in chapter 2 when Jonah found himself in the belly of the whale and he cried out to God for grace and mercy and rescue. And God came and delivered him and Jonah praised and thanked God for his grace. Remember he said salvation belongs to the Lord. But now, When that same saving grace is extended to others, to those he doesn't like, 
He doesn't praise God. He gets angry with God. He's in a rage. You see, Jonah, he felt like the Ninevites did not deserve the grace of God. He felt superior to the Ninevites. You see, Jonah felt religiously superior to them. I mean, he belonged to Israel, the chosen people of God. They're just pagans. He felt morally superior to them. He's a prophet. He knows the scriptures. He knows theology. They're wicked. They're cruel. In other words, Jonah could understand why God might show grace to somebody like him. But Jonah could not understand why God would show grace to the Ninevites, to somebody like them. And let me just ask you, who are the Ninevites in your heart? Which group of people do you look down upon? Do you scoff at? Do you ridicule? Which group of people do you think God should not forgive? Which group of people do you struggle to extend grace to? Maybe it's those who are on the opposite end of the political spectrum to you. Maybe it's green supporters. Maybe it's liberal voters. Maybe it's those who have a different skin colour to you. Maybe it's those who live in a different suburb to you, with a different socioeconomic status. Maybe it's those who don't know theology as well as you do. Who do you look down on? Who do you feel superior to? Who do you scoff at? You know, every year on the Day of Atonement, which is a a Jewish festival, Jews all over the world gather together in synagogues and at the end of their service, they actually read the entire story of Jonah. And at the end of the story, all of the, the Jews in the synagogue say together in unison, we are Jonah. Because we have to admit that there is a little bit of Jonah in every single one of us. Every single one of us has this propensity to look down on others, this sense of superiority, this sense of self-righteousness towards someone or towards some other group. And if you're a Christian and you kind of sense that in your life, then you're not okay with that. You shouldn't be okay with that. And maybe... We're wondering, well, what's the solution? How do we not relate to others with this kind of sense of superiority and self-righteousness? And the answer, of course, is the gospel. The good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Because let me tell you this, the gospel tells you that you, me, that we were so sinful that Christ had to die upon the cross for us. And when you understand this, this fills your heart with humility. You understand, I'm not better than anybody else. As that old saying goes, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. This fills your heart with humility. But the gospel also tells you that you were so loved that Christ willingly died for you. That he willingly went to the cross for your sins. And this fills your heart with assurance. You're safe and secure in the love of God. You don't need to compete with everybody else. You don't need to look down upon everybody else to make yourself feel loved and valued. You are loved by God. And so you can reach out to others and not look down on others. And in fact, this is one of the ways that you can know if the grace of God is real in your life. 
if the gospel has really taken root in your heart, it's not just that you rejoice in receiving the grace of God as a gift for yourself, though that's part of it, but it's do you extend grace to others as well. It's one of the ways you can know if the grace of God is real in your life. It's not just if you receive it, but if you extend it. Look at what Paul writes in Ephesians 4 where he puts this so well. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Why? Because just as God in Christ, God has forgiven you. He says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Why? Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Do you see the pattern there? We are forgiven by God in Christ, so we forgive one another. We are loved by God in Christ, so we love one another. The grace of God, the love of God fills us up and then flows out of us to others. And if it's not flowing out of us to others, then it means we are getting spiritually bloated and spiritually fat. And it might mean that there is a blockage somewhere. Because the grace of God fills us up so that we can extend it to others. One of the more powerful examples that I've heard of about this reality in recent years was from this young lady, young Catholic lady named Immaculée Illibagiza. Now Immaculée miraculously survived the Rwandan genocide and she survived by huddling silently with seven other women, seven other women in a three by four foot bathroom for 91 days. Three months. While she was in that bathroom, mobs of her former neighbours and friends were travelling through the countryside, slaughtering her countrymen and women, including her mother and her father and two of her brothers. Now, after a long process, Immaculate eventually came face to face with the man who killed her mother and one of her brothers. And after months of physical and mental and spiritual suffering, she was able to look this man in the eye and say to him, I forgive you. And Immaculate has gone on to become an advocate for for forgiveness and peace. Now I know that for us, most of our extending grace to others, it might not be that drastic. But friends, it is just as important. Because one of the ways we can know if the grace of God is real in our life is if we extend it to others. Because it fills us up to flow out of us. And this is the reality that Jonah just did not understand. He's happy to receive the love of God, the grace of God for himself, but far more reluctant for it to be extended to others. And so he gets angry with God for his compassion and his grace. Now how do you think God would respond to Jonah. Remember, Jonah's already run away from God, disobeyed God, and God has lovingly pursued him, restored him, and used him powerfully, and now Jonah's angry with him again. We might think that Jonah's going to end up in the ocean again, but this time with no fish to rescue him. But that's not what happens. God lovingly pursues Jonah again, and he comes to him with a simple question, and it's such a loving, gracious, important question because it's designed to get Jonah thinking about what he's doing right now. Look at what God asked Jonah in verse 4. 
He comes to Jonah and he says, is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? In other words, Jonah, I can tell that you're angry. I can tell that you are very, very angry. You want to die. But are you right to be angry? Why are you angry, Jonah? God's asking Jonah to to reassess this situation, to re-examine his heart. And friends, this is a good question, not just for Jonah, but for us as well. When we get angry, it's good for us to ask ourselves, is it right for me to be angry right now? Why am I angry right now? You see, anger is kind of like smoke from a fire. It, It tells us that something in our heart is burning and we need to discover what that is and why it has combusted in us like this. Now, of course, not all anger is wrong. I mean, if someone breaks into your house and threatens your family, it is right to get angry. We should get angry at the evil of human trafficking. I mean, not all anger is wrong. But if we're honest, much of our anger in our day-to-day lives is wrong. Because we get angry, not most often for righteous reasons, but for selfish reasons. Most often when we get angry, it's because we love ourselves and we love things too much and we don't love God and others enough. Let me explain it this way. You see, when we we get angry when something we love is threatened, like I said a moment ago, someone comes into your house, threatens your family, you get angry and that's good. But oftentimes when we get angry in day-to-day life, what's actually being threatened is our pride, our ego, and our reputation. And so we react. Here's the way one author puts it. He says, if we find ourselves angry about getting snubbed on social media or being cut off in traffic, guilty, or or, or going unrecognised for work, or having an idea shut down, or feeling underappreciated by our spouse, the problem might be that we love ourselves too much. See, this is where much of our anger flows from. We love ourselves, we love things too much, and we don't love others enough. And this is the problem for Jonah. He loves himself too much, and he does not love the Ninevites. And so when he sees the Ninevites receiving the grace of God, he gets angry. And his anger is smoke from the self-righteous fire that is burning in his heart. And so it's a good question for us to ask when we get angry. Is it right for me to be angry? Why am I getting so defensive about this? What do I love so much right now that I feel the need to get angry about it? Is it right for us to be angry? See, the human heart is deceitful above all things and sometimes our assessment of a situation and our emotional response to a situation is not correct and not the right thing. And so we need to ask ourselves, is it right for me to be angry? And this was true for Jonah. He got it all wrong. He got angry at God's compassion when he should have rejoiced over it. He got angry at God's right to deliver. But sadly for Jonah, he's not finished yet. And what we see in verses 5 to 9 is that he also gets angry at God's right, not just to deliver, but God's right to destroy. You see, instead of answering the question that God's asked him, is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? Jonah walks off in a huff. He walks out to the edge of the city, he climbs a mountain, he builds himself a little shelter, he pulls out his little deck chair, sits down and just waits to see what's going to happen to Nineveh. He's hoping against hope that God will change his mind and that God will wipe the Ninevites out. Because if he does, Jonah wants to have a front row seat. 
But as Jonah's sitting there waiting and waiting in the blazing sun of the Middle East, his makeshift shelter is not providing too much relief. And so God graciously provides Jonah with a plant that grows fast enough and, and large enough to kind of cover Jonah and to give him some shade. And we're told that Jonah was very happy about this plant. Now this is the first time in the entire book that Jonah's been happy. And it's about something that gives him comfort and pleasure. But unfortunately for him, it doesn't last too long. The next day, God provides a worm that eats this plant, kills it, and Jonah is once again exposed to the blazing sun. And then, God's not finished with him. God appoints a blazing hot wind to blow across the land, and Jonah is faint, he's probably sunburnt, he's depressed, he's discouraged, and once again, he's ready to die. Because God has destroyed the plant that he loves so much. And so we need to ask ourselves the question right now, and God will ask Jonah this question in just a moment. Did Jonah make this plant grow? Did Jonah deserve this plant? Did Jonah even ask for this plant? Did Jonah own this plant? Of course, the answer to all those questions is no. The plant was graciously given to him by God. And just as God had the right to freely give it to him, God had the right to freely take it away from him. And that's the significance of that little word, provided. If you read those verses, you'll see it three times. God provides the plant, God provides the worm, God provides the wind. And even earlier in Jonah, we were told that God provided the storm, God provided the fish. All of these things are meant to tell us, are meant to reveal to us the absolute sovereignty of God. The absolute authority of God over nature and over our lives. It's meant to reveal to us the truth that God is the God of the vine. He gives us gifts and blessings and things to enjoy in life. Every good and perfect gift come down, comes down from above, we're told in James. But God is also the God of the worm. And he takes things away. He gives us things we don't always understand. He gives us things we don't always like. Not because he's mean or capricious or cruel, but because like a good and loving parent, a parent who sees what we do not see, who knows what we do not know, he knows what we ultimately need. One author says, at times we doubt God's sovereignty. Maybe as faithful Christians we might not say that we doubt it, but we act like it. We live with anxiety and fear. We tremble at the thought of an unknown future. We stress about finances and family. We worry about jobs and security. But in the midst of all the necessary responsible steps that we must take, we also must ask, how am I trusting God in this moment? The book of Jonah gives us every reason to believe that God can handle our problems. He moved an entire series of events to bring Jonah to Nineveh and to see a city saved. God is sovereign in the book of Jonah. But we must see beyond this book too that God is sovereign in our own stories. This is the way Job put it in the Old Testament. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. See, Job lost everything, but even in that moment he trusted his God. 
Now Jonah's not yet at that point. Jonah's not yet ready to praise the name of God. In fact, he's still incredibly angry at God. But God is teaching Jonah an incredibly important lesson in the midst of this. And it's a lesson that has incredible importance for you and for me as well. And we see it in verses 10 to 11 when we see the shocking grace of God. Look at what we read in these last couple of verses. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? See, here is the point that God is making to Jonah. He says, Jonah, you are filled with compassion regarding this plant that gave you shade. Yet you want me to light up 120,000 people and you want to cheer from the sidelines while I do it. Jonah, your priorities are wrong. You're concerned about this plant that gave you comfort and pleasure. I'm concerned about people who are perishing. God's asking Jonah, Jonah, don't you care? Don't you care? And so what's Jonah's response? How does Jonah answer this question from God? Look at verse 12. Only there is no verse 12. That's where the book ends. It ends with that question. Should I not have compassion upon that great city? And the reason the book ends with this question hanging is because we are meant to ask this question ourselves. Do we care? Do we care more about our possessions and our stuff or do we care about people who are perishing? Do we have compassion upon those who are far from God? Are we, as those who have received grace from God, are we extending that grace to others? This is the question that the book of Jonah leaves us with and it's an important question. Do we have a heart like Jonah? Are we filled with ourselves and our stuff or do we have a heart like God? Are we filled with compassion for others? Will we love people even when we aren't like them? We don't have to agree with them but we do have to care about them and we can draw near to them with compassion, because God has compassion on them. And imagine what God might do through us as a people if together we said, God, give us a heart like yours. I don't care what it costs me. I don't care how bad it hurts. I'm going to do what you've called me to do, God. I'm going to reach out with your love and compassion. I'm going to get to know my neighbours, not of the project, but out of love for them. I'm going to invite them over for dinner. I'm going to get to know them. I'm going to hear their story. I'm going to start using my money, not just to go bigger and better, but for causes and organisations that are pushing back on darkness and evil in this world. I'm going to keep short accounts and I'm going to forgive quickly. I'm not going to hold on to grudges and hold on to bitterness. I'm not always going to ask, what's in it for me? What benefit do I get from doing this? I'm going to ask, how can I bless others? How can I serve others? 
I'm not going to be quick to judge those people who look different to me, who are different to me. I'm going to reach out to them with compassion. What might God do through a church who's willing to say, God, give us a heart like yours? And the only thing that's going to help us to do that, the only thing that's going to empty us of ourselves and move ourselves out into the world with the compassion of God is to be filled with the compassion and love of God ourselves. And we see a glimpse of it in Jonah, but we see it most fully and most clearly on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth not to die for his friends, but to die for his enemies, you and for me. Not to die for self-righteous people who think they have it all together, but to die for sinners who know that they don't. Romans 5 verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And when that love is poured into our hearts, it fills us up and it sends us out. Because God has not called his people to be smug and self-righteous. God has called his people to be agents of his love, agents of his compassion in a lost and broken world. That's the heartbeat of God. And as we go out of this place today and as we go forward into the future, may this be our heartbeat as well. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, give us a heart like yours. Give us a heart like yours. Fill our hearts with your love so that we might love others and reach out for them with the good news of what you've done for us. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, we're going to continue in song, but before we do, as a community, and if you are comfortable to do so, we're going to read out a statement of Christian belief that surmises the redemptive work of our God. So let's stand together as we read the Apostles' Creed as affirmation. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. Spirit, conceiving 